Good morning. It seems like without fail, when Greg travels, there is weather, some weather event. I always kind of kick myself afterwards thinking, I should have known. Greg was on the road this weekend, it's snowing out, icy roads. Glad that you could all be here this morning. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 as we conclude this brief Advent series, Unto Us a Son is Given. And if you're able, physically, I'd invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word out of our deep reverence and awe and love for God and His Word by which He speaks to us. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, we ask you once more, speak to us through your word that we might know you. Reveal yourself to us for your glory and for our good. Amen. You may be seated. In the movie Shawshank Redemption, there's an inmate named Brooks Hatlin, and Hatlin was incarcerated at Shawshank State Prison for 50 years. Years He served there as a prison librarian for 40 years. He earned a college degree there. But at the age of 73, after 50 years in prison, he got word that he was going to be released on parole for good behavior. And Brooks was a harmless guy, a nice old guy. Everybody liked him. But upon receiving that word of his coming release from prison, he grabbed another inmate and held a knife to his neck and threatened to kill him. And all of the, his friends come running, Brooks, what are you doing? You're out of your mind. And he said, he cries out in despair, it's the only way they'll let me stay. He didn't want to leave. And he thought his only way to stay was to murder somebody. He, he doesn't murder that inmate. He's released. And a bunch of the other inmates later are gathered around together trying to understand what happened. Why, how could somebody just snap like that? Somebody like... Brooks and Morgan Freeman's character Red explains to the other inmates, he's just institutionalized. The man's been in here 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man, an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Well, Brooks is released and he struggles to adjust to life on the outside. He writes a letter back to the gang in prison. He says, Dear fellas, I can't believe how fast things move on the outside. I have trouble sleeping at night. I have bad dreams like I'm falling. I wake up scared. 
Sometimes it takes me a while to remember where I am. I don't like it here. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I've decided not to stay. This movie's old enough, I think I can give this spoiler, but tragically, Brooks ends his own life in that despair. And for those of us who enjoy freedom outside of prison, it it could be hard to imagine why release from prison wouldn't be good news to someone. How, How could that not be the best news ever? Tons of people on the inside obviously long to get out, but, but what if you had nowhere to go? What if that was all you knew? You see, freedom requires a sort of maturity in internal self-governance, and without that, freedom is actually a terrifying, overwhelming, unnerving thing. Captivity provides a sort of structure, a sense of stability and security. There's this external, outside-in coercion that can serve as a substitute for that internal responsibility. And that's what Brooks was missing. That was essentially the problem that the church in Galatia was facing. And it's a problem that you and I face. We face again and again and again. We face it in the form of nagging guilt that may persist. Maybe you've been a Christian for years, and yet guilt still Remains. Maybe you have this chronic uncertainty about how God sees you and how he feels about you. It manifests in the form of legalism, this sense of security that comes from feeling like I just, if I just check off all the boxes, then I'm right with God. Then I'm secure. In Galatians 4, Paul is, we're just dropping right in the middle of the book, so needs a little bit of context. Paul is locked in this life and death struggle for the soul of the church in Galatia. He pleads with them in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Again, how could it be that people set free would ever turn back to slavery, to captivity, to bondage? And yet there is this false sense of security there. And so Paul is pleading with the church, Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And throughout this letter, Paul describes himself, listen to his own words, he describes himself as astonished in chapter 1 verse 6, afraid, afraid that he labored in vain in chapter 4 verse 11. In the anguish of childbirth, in chapter 4, verse 19, perplexed, in 4, verse 20. In chapter 3, verse 1, he rebukes the Galatians sternly, and he says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, that's, that's the only way he can think of, how could you be turning from all of the freedom that you have in Christ back to the bondage and captivity of legalism, trying to earn your salvation from God? How could you be doing that unless there's some spell cast over you? Who has bewitched you? And he concludes the letter in chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So apparently even 2,000 years ago, people communicated like that, right? If you want to get your point across, you might text in all caps. Paul's saying, this is, I wrote this letter in my own hand, all caps, to communicate to you, this is deadly serious. Why was Paul so troubled? Because the Galatian church, after hearing the gospel from Paul, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached, they were, according to chapter 1, verse 6, turning 
to a different gospel. The only problem is there is no other gospel. To turn to a false gospel is to turn away from the only hope for sinners. There were false teachers, chapter 1, verse 7, who were distorting the gospel. They came into the church and persuaded the Galatians that trusting in Jesus was not enough, that in addition to trusting and believing in Jesus, they also had to perform works to merit God's favor, kind of like an employee working for a paycheck. These works included strict adherence to Jewish ceremonial laws and customs like circumcision, chapter 2, verse 12, and 6, verse 12, the observance of religious holidays and religious calendar, chapter 4, verse 10, and the Galatians fell for it. They believed it. They were convinced of it. They had been set free from sin through faith in Jesus. But for some reason, they began to miss that false sense of security that comes from strict rule-keeping and checking the boxes. And they willingly, willingly returned to the bondage of man-made rules, man-made systems for earning God's approval. They were seeking to work slavishly for God rather than humbly relying on Him to work for them. And Paul says in chapter 5, verse 2, points out how deadly this error is. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. All of the benefit, all of the freedom, all of the forgiveness available in Christ is of no advantage to you unless you rely only on Christ and not on yourself. As soon as you shift your hope to anyone else, anything else, to yourself and your own works, then that gospel is of no advantage to you. You have to trust. You have to believe. You have to rely on Christ. And so here, when we pick up in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, the Spirit of God who inspired Paul is communicating through Paul to the Galatian church and to us today that God sent his son, his only begotten son, to make slaves into sons. God sent his son to make slaves into sons. And that radically changes the way that you relate to God and the way that you relate to the world that God has made. It radically changes your relationship with God and your relationship with God's World. Through this text, God means to reveal himself to you as a generous father. That's what God reveals himself to be here. And God means to persuade you that through his son, through Christ, our redeemer, you can now live in the fullness of the freedom that Christ has won. God sent his son into the world to free you from slavery and into sonship, out of bondage to empty and oppressive rules and into the glorious freedom of an heir. Freedom that he himself by his spirit equips you to walk in without fear like Brooks Hatlin, who was overwhelmed by that freedom, terrorized by it. God himself means to empower you by his spirit to live in the good of that. That means all the rights all the privileges, all the benefits of having God as your Father belong to you, Christian. All those blessings, all those benefits are yours. And so that life-transforming truth comes to us in this text in three parts. First, what we were apart from Christ, verses 1 through 3. And then 
what God did through Christ, and finally, who we are now in Christ. So what we were apart from Christ, verses 1 through 3. Remember, Paul wrote this to convince Gentile Christians not to turn back to trying to earn favor from God by submitting to man-made Jewish rules and customs and traditions. And so he starts off in this chapter with this analogy explaining that even Jews, apart from faith in Christ, are slaves. So for anybody to try to be Jewish and submit to those same regulations is to turn back to slavery. So here's his analogy, verses 1 and 2. The heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So imagine a child who is the heir of a billion-dollar trust fund. I mean, that would be pretty nice, right? I mean, he's got it made, a billion dollars of assets and property and businesses all stored up and waiting for him, and yet, as long as his life is regimented by the hired employees of his father, the nanny, the private tutor, the tennis coach, the cook, he is functionally no different than a slave. His life is ordered and structured by other people above him. And he has no access to any of those assets as long as he is a minor. Legally, they belong to him, but he's just a minor. And so he has no control of those assets or even of his own life. He's under the control of others. And Paul says, that was the condition of the Jews before Christ, outside of Christ. God promised Abraham and his offspring, spiritual blessings worth infinitely more than a billion-dollar trust fund. The forgiveness of sins, the blessing, the privilege of having God as their God. And yet, rather than accessing and enjoying those privileges and all of those benefits by faith, the vast majority of Abraham's descendants were enslaved in sin and unbelief. Verse 3, Paul says, in the same way, that's like the trust fund baby, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In this immaturity, they were enslaved. And of course, Paul's Jewish opponents would have objected vehemently to that. We're not slaves. We know they would object like that because they did, in fact, in John 8, when Jesus said to them, you're slaves. And they said, we're sons of Abraham. We're not anybody's slaves. And it, it is rather offensive to tell people who think they're free that they're not free. In any age, any culture, any generation. But it's even more offensive than that, actually. Because notice what Paul says here. He says, we, I believe he's talking about the Jewish experience, we Jews were enslaved. We might expect him to say here, to the Mosaic law, to sin, maybe. But he says, we were enslaved to the elements of the world. What are the elements of the world? The, the Greek word here is stoicheia, which means the basic building blocks of all matter, the stuff that the universe is made out of. So you've heard of the band Earth, Wind, and Fire? Well, that's, that band is named after the elements of the universe that the ancients believed in, Earth, and wind or air and fire and water. Those are the basic elements that everything is made out of. But 
how could you possibly be enslaved to the elements? What does that mean? Well, we have a clue in verses 9 and 10. If you look further down, Galatians 4, verses 9 and 10, Paul asks in shock, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? The ESV sometimes translates this word elementary principles or elementary spirits. I'm just using the 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 most basic translation, the elements. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? How are they being enslaved to the elements? You observe days and months and seasons and years. So there's our clue. Religious adherence to a calendar governed by the movement of the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, is a form of bondage to the elements of creation, the stuff that God has made, slavery to a calendar. So thinking you can earn approval from God by doing certain things or not doing certain things on certain days makes you a slave to the clock, but it doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change anybody's heart. We have another clue, and I believe confirmation in Colossians 2. If you turn to that chapter, Colossians 2, Paul uses the exact same term Elements of the world, in Colossians 2, verse 8, when he says to that church, see to it that no one takes you captive. So there, again, same language of captivity, slavery, bondage. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elements of the world, and not according to Christ. So here, the elements of the world is set out alongside of human tradition and human philosophy, and deceptive ideas, things that look smart to a lot of people, but actually enslave people. And we have more clarity further down, Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Again, talking about the calendar, and here he's talking about diet and food and what you eat and don't eat. These are a shadow, Paul says, of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then further down, Colossians 2, 20 through 23, if with Christ you died to the elements of the world, same phrase again, if with Christ you died to the elements of the world, why, same question he asks the Galatians, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit That's the language of captivity and bondage. Why do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all referring to things that perish as they are used? The elements, the physical world. Paul says people make up all these strict guidelines about what you can touch and what you can eat and what you can do and when you can do it, trying to look good on the outside without being changed on the inside. Listen to what Paul says says this scathing critique, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Looks impressive to have such an elaborate system. It has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That's this severe avoidance of all material things and severity to the body. But... They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. People who slavishly follow man-made rules and regulations about the material world are enslaved to the elements. They're enslaved to the elements. They have no idea how to live in God's world freely or rightly in relationship 
with God and the world that he's made. They're enslaved to these elaborate attempts to look good on the outside without being good on the inside. Now, God gave his people, the Jewish people, a a law that was holy and righteous and good, according to Romans chapter 7. God did not give them an oppressive, enslaving law. And he did give them a ceremonial law with dietary restrictions. He did tell them to practice circumcision, to observe the Sabbath, all of those things. And yet, Paul says here, those, those, those ceremonial laws were a shadow and the substance belongs to Christ. So think of training wheels on a little kid's bike. Actually, training wheels don't even exist anymore because now they have like those strider bikes, which is a much more intelligent way to teach kids how to balance. But I learned how to ride a bike with training wheels. And training wheels are a substitute for balance until the principles of balance are internalized in the child learning to ride a bike, right? Once you learn to balance on your own, you don't need the external aid to give you the balance. And all throughout the Old Testament, God was repeatedly communicating to his people that many of these ceremonial laws that he gave to his people were pointers. They were like training wheels. They were actually pointing to deep internal realities, all along, I mean, including circumcision. From the beginning, listen to Deuteronomy 10, 16. This is God through Moses telling his people, listen, even circumcision is not just about external physical circumcision. It's pointing to a heart condition that has to happen in you by God's grace. Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That's where the real change needs to happen. Not marks on your physical body. What about sacrifices, the whole sacrificial system? Even there, the prophets are saying things like Hosea 6.6, God's communicating through them, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. We might read that and think, God doesn't desire sacrifice? I've read Leviticus, it sounds like he does desire sacrifice. And all of that was pointing to deeper realities that had to happen in the heart. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. If you just have the external form without any heart change, you miss it all. And most of ethnic Israel missed the point. And so they took commands that did come from God originally and they twisted them into what they thought were job descriptions, how to work for God, to earn something from God. And in doing so, they became enslaved to man-made traditions, obsessed with the elements, the food, the drink, the day of the week, the outside and not the inside. They became enslaved to these outwardly observable ways of trying to impress God and man. They were enslaved to the elements. And yet... It's not just the Jews who were enslaved. The ancient pagans, the Greeks and the Romans, they were enslaved to the elements. That's probably why the Jews would have been so offended by the statement from Paul because he's saying that their observance of the man-made traditions they erected around God's law made them just like the pagans, enslaved to the elements. The pagans, the Greeks, the Romans, they actually had gods associated with the elements. So there was a god or a goddess of the air, of the water, of fire, of the earth, of all these things. And so Paul says, listen to Galatians 4, 8 through 9, formerly when you, I think he's talking about the Gentiles there, when you Gentiles did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements of the world? Saying before you knew anything about 
the Jewish religion, before you even heard the gospel of Jesus, you were already slaves to the world, worshiping these gods and goddesses of the elements. And why would you want to turn back as slaves to them again? I think it's easy for us today to look back and kind of scoff at the ancients and think, isn't that ridiculous? People could get so wrapped up like that, and yet it's not just the ancients. Apart from Christ, all people are enslaved to the elements, including very modern, very progressive people in America today, very scientific-minded people. I mean, just in this very century, the mayor of New York City and the Board of Health in New York City tried to ban the sale of soda in containers larger than 16 ounces. They didn't ultimately succeed, but they really tried to ban the sale of soda in containers larger than 16 ounces. Why? Because they are enslaved to the elements, what you eat, what you drink, and this way of trying to look good, to look like they really care about people through these external formalities that's all just a show, rather than having any change on the inside. So, was it just two years ago that Seattle banned plastic straws, and soon all these other cities started banning plastic straws, and soon it became this way for restaurants to show you outwardly how much they love the planet, that they don't give plastic straws. I mean, never mind all the other trash that gets thrown out, or the fact that if you throw the plastic straws away, they don't end up in the ocean, especially if you live in South Dakota. They end up in a landfill. So all of these external formalities for showing how good we are to make people think we're good on the outside, even if we're not good on the inside. And the internet is full of fad diets, and I'm convinced a lot of those are about making people feel good, not in a healthy way, like a a health, physical health way, but making people feel good about themselves in a moral way. I feel good. I feel morally superior to others because I don't eat these products like you do. It becomes a way of one-upping others, looking good dealing with our conscience. I think we're seeing stuff like this this year due to COVID, all kinds of ways of externally trying to look like we care about people that may not actually communicate that. And so you have people who say, well, if you're not wearing a mask, you don't love your neighbor. It might not be that, right? I don't have a problem with wearing a mask. I have a problem with going through external ways of making it look like you care about people that are cheap substitutes for actually loving people by laying down your life for them, the way that God's word says. So we modern people are very much enslaved to the elements as well, external ways of looking good without being good. But it's so easy to pick on others. I mean, So if we turn and look at ourselves, what, what do you do to look good on the outside? Even good things can become hollow shells. Things like attending church can just be a formality. A way to feel good, well, at least I go to church, show up there every week. I mean, even Bible reading can just become a checklist thing. I do to look good, to sound good and impressive to others. The thing about man-made rules is that they can get so elaborate, they look so impressive, but they are oppressive, according to Galatians 4. And the point in all of this is that we are all, in sin, apart from Christ, slaves, We don't know how to live in God's word. We don't know how to relate to the stuff that God has made. We have no idea. We're clueless. We're immature. We're like that child who needs these external restrictions. So what's the remedy? Well, the remedy in the analogy is grow up, reach maturity, come of age, inherit the trust fund, right? 
How do you do that? How do you grow up? How do you mature and step into the fullness of that? Here is the scandal of the gospel. Maturity is not something you achieve. It's not something you come into when you're ready in order to come to God. It's something God produces. It's something God provides. So the second part of this text, verses 4 through 6, is all about what God did through Christ. What God did. All of the focus here is on God's action. Verse 3, when we were children, we were enslaved, so we might expect the rest of the analogy to unfold. So when we grew up, we were free. No, look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, which corresponds to, in the analogy, the date set by the Father, when the fullness of time had come, we reached maturity? No, God acted. God sent his son. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the sonship, the maturity that we step into is something God accomplished, something God did. The turning point from immaturity and slavery to maturity and freedom is not dependent on you. It's dependent on God through Christ. The fullness of time, it's not some achievement, not some discovery that we come into. It's God's initiative, God's action. God sent his son, and everything about that is grace, pure grace from start to finish. Those are two of the sweetest words in all of Scripture, but God. Look for those words when you're reading the Bible. They're right here, but when the fullness of time had come, God. But God sent his son. That is grace. The fact that he sent his son is grace. And the way that he sent his son is grace. Born of a woman, born under the law. I mean, just consider all that's wrapped up as we've been doing all of Advent, meditating on this truth. God's son was born. He was born. He was born of a woman. This is not like the Greek gods and goddesses who look down on humanity from Mount Olympus and then when they're annoyed, they might say, hey, I'm going down there to mess with them. And then they just take on human form and come down as a mere mortal and they do something heroic and the the Greeks look around and go, that's a god among us. We were deceived. We thought it was a human. I mean, the Greeks have this idea of gods coming down looking like humans. This is not God coming and fooling us all by looking like a human. To be born of a woman, to go through nine months of gestation, to be born tethered to his mother by an umbilical cord for all of his life-sustaining nutrients, to enter the world through painful, grueling labor and contractions, to come into the world in a mess of amniotic fluid and waxy vernix. God sent his son born of a woman, made out of the same stuff that we're made out of. If God's going to free us from slavery to the stuff, because we don't know how to live in God's world, the fact that he took on the stuff tells us something crucial. It means he didn't come to evacuate us from the material world. He came to redeem the world that he made, to redeem us in the world so that we could learn how to live rightly in this world. He was born of a woman, and he was born under the law. For all other human beings to be born under the law is synonymous with being in sin, under sin. To be under the law is to be under sin because the law of God just exposes our sin, but not Jesus. Jesus was born under the law as the only one who would ever, who could ever perfectly fulfill the law from the heart without sin. And he did it 
to redeem us. The reason God sent his son is all grace. Two reasons given in verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption. And syntactically, the grammar of it, they're both equal reasons to redeem us and that we might receive adoption. But logically, they kinda, the, the second one flows from the first. First, we have to be redeemed out of slavery. Then we can receive this legal status as adopted sons and daughters of God. God sent his son to redeem us, to buy us out of slavery. The word means to, to buy back, to buy something to yourself. And though this text doesn't explicitly mention how Jesus does that, the rest of the book of Galatians leaves no doubt. Chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Amen. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 3, 13 through 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so then we see the real reason he was born under the law, to fulfill all of its righteous requirements and then to suffer in himself the curse that the law demands from all who break the law. He became the curse for us. And as amazing as that is, it's just the beginning. It's just the start. It just clears the way for the the real glory to happen. By redeeming slaves, that's just the first half. God then adopts you as his own children. God sent his son to make slaves into sons. So he had to buy you out of slavery. And then he had to make you his son, his daughter. Listen to J.I. Packer on the relationship between justification, the forgiveness of our sins in Christ, and adoption. I don't, I don't know that it can be said better than this. Justification is the primary blessing, the primary blessing of the gospel because it meets our primary spiritual need. We have to be forgiven of our sins to be back in right relationship with God. That has to be dealt with, so justification is primary in that sense, fundamental. But, and I'm skipping over a glorious paragraph there, go, go read Knowing God by J.I. Packer, his chapter on adoption. But contrast this now with adoption, Packer says. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Closeness, affection, generosity. Does that describe the way that you relate to God, the way you think of God relating to you? That is the heart of your new relationship with God through Jesus, our Redeemer, who was born of woman under the law to redeem you that you might receive adoption, closeness, affection, generosity. Then listen to this sentence. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. There's no minimizing that at all. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. You are right with God the judge through Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. But your relationship with him now is not like somebody relating to a judge. I mean, if you're pardoned in the courtroom, you would be thrilled. And if you walk out of there and I asked you, so 
you know, how's your relationship with that judge? You'd say, what relationship? I hope I never see that guy again. I don't want to be back there. And I think a lot of people end the gospel after the forgiveness of their sins. Whew. Okay, I'm pardoned. What a relief. But I'm, I'm still kind of terrified of the judge on the bench when the reality is God redeemed you to adopt you, to make you sons and daughters. Turning slaves into mature sons is the work of God through Christ our Redeemer from start to finish. It's all grace. God does that. And so that brings us to what we are now. Verse 7, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to make your adoption a legal reality. God sends his spirit to make your adoption a lived reality, an experienced reality, a felt reality. Adoption changes the way that you relate to God and the way that you live in God's world. Listen again to J.I. Packer. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. How much do you make of the thought that you're God's child? Adoption changes the way that you pray. Changes the way you pray. The Spirit of God sent by God into your heart is, according to this text, the very Spirit of the Son, the eternal Son of God. It's the very same Spirit. And it was the Spirit in Him that was crying out, Abba, Father, in the garden in Mark 14. And Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. And so we pray the same way that the eternal Son of God prays because the Spirit of that Son is now in us and it's Him crying out in us, Abba, Father. Or the way that Paul says it in Romans 8, we cry by that Spirit, Abba, Father. And there Paul calls Him the Spirit of adoption. Here He's the Spirit of the Son. In Romans 8, He's the Spirit of adoption. This is what the Spirit affects in you so that you No, the Spirit testifies with your spirit. You are a child of God, bought and secured by the Son of God. And the Spirit causes you to know that. Adoption changes the way you pray, and it changes the way that you relate to God. I love this testimony from John Wesley, as told by John Stott in his commentary on Galatians. He explains, John Wesley was the son of a clergyman. He was already himself a clergyman, and he was orthodox in his belief his theology, his religious practice. He was upright in his conduct. He was full of good works. He and his friends, listen to what they did, visited the inmates of the prisons and the workhouses of Oxford. They took pity on the slum children of the city. They provided them with food and clothing and education. They observed Saturday as the Sabbath, as well as Sunday, just to be safe. They went to church and to Holy Communion. They gave alms, searched the scriptures, fasted and prayed, but they were bound in the fetters of their own religion for they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous instead of putting their trust in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so a few years later, as a young man, John Wesley, in his own words, came to, quote, trust in Christ, in Christ only for salvation. And he received this inward assurance that his sins had been taken away. And after this, looking back to his pre-conversion experience, he wrote, I had 
even the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. He could look back on that time and think, I, man, I, I slaved away like a servant for God. I did not have the faith of a son. I didn't know God as my father. How do you relate to God? Christ, our Redeemer, changes the way you relate to God. And adoption changes the way that you live in God's world and relate to the elements, the stuff that the world is made out of. When you think of adoption, I don't know about you, but what comes into my mind is a couple adopting a baby, raising that baby, right? But Paul's analogy here, he's contrasting the billionaire child who's a minor and has no access to the assets with the full-grown heir who has come of age and now has total access and freedom. So the adoption that you experience, not God adopting you like a baby, but God adopting you as a mature son, daughter, who steps into the fullness and freedom of living in God's world, knowing this is my Father's world. He owns it all. It all belongs to Him, and I belong here as a son of God. I mean, the implication of that Spirit-inspired analogy from Paul in Galatians 4 is that if you believe in Jesus, you are not an adopted minor, you are an adopted heir, fully grown, fully free from all external restraints, all of those guardians, all of those trustees. I mean, think about the restraints on a toddler. I just think of our own house with a a two-year-old right now and an infant. Um, Nap times and high chairs and outlet covers and all of these things. And I feel like I'm always telling Knox, no, you can't have that because you don't know what to do with it. Like you're trying to put it in your mouth and you're going to choke on it and that's not what it's for. But someday he's going to internalize that wisdom and he's not going to attempt to choke himself on things that don't go in his mouth. Right? The outlet covers in our house are not because Barbara and I occasionally are tempted to stick our fingers in the socket. We've internalized wisdom to know we don't even have the desire to do that anymore. That's what maturity is. You don't even want to. You have it from the inside. But until you have that on the inside, you have to have these external things holding you back. When the heir reaches maturity and inherits what's rightfully his own, he doesn't take orders from the nanny or the tutor anymore. But he does live rightly, stewarding the inheritance that he was given because he's mature now. Think about it this way. If you wake up tomorrow morning and you check your email and in your inbox you have an email from your high school English teacher assigning you a 10-page paper due by Friday, you think, it's New Year's this week. And then you think, wait a minute, English teacher? I'm not in school. Would you write the paper this week? Or would you just maybe send a polite email back? Sorry, (laughs) good to hear from you and all, but you wouldn't write the paper. And... Not writing the paper doesn't mean that you take everything you learned in English class and just, I don't need that anymore. No, if you learned it, you're going to use that for the rest of your life. You're going to use, hopefully, proper English. When you write, all the time, you're just not going to write the paper because you're not under that authority anymore. That's how the heirs of God live in the world. We live rightly in the world because the Spirit of God in us internalizes all of the truth of God's Word and His ways and gives us the desire from the heart to want to live in God's ways. So we're not under external restrictions. We're not trying to find somebody who's figured out the key to life and can tell us what diet to follow or what things to touch or not touch or what to use or not use. We're not enslaved to plastic bags versus reusable bags. We we don't live like that in God's world because we think rightly, this is my Father's world, and it's all internalized. So if you're trusting in Jesus, only 
Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are no longer a slave. You're a child. And if you're a child, then you are an heir by God's grace. Fellow heir with God. Co-heir with Christ, according to Romans 8. An heir who will inherit the kingdom of God, Galatians 5. An heir according to the hope of eternal life, Titus 3. An heir who is looking forward to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, Ephesians 1. And get this, Romans 4.13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. This is my father's world. That's the anthem of all those redeemed through Christ and adopted as sons. Once you were slaves, but God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, Christ our redeemer, to redeem you and to make you sons and daughters. So live like that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done. And that the good of this, the glory of this new identity does not depend on some feature in us that sets us apart as more deserving than any other people. Some work that we do to merit or earn this depends entirely on you. Thank you for your love, for your grace in Christ Jesus, that you would set your affection on us. The very love you have for Jesus, now you love us with that same love. And we want to love you with the same love that your son Jesus has for you. And you make that possible because you put that spirit, the very spirit of the son, in us. And so stir up our affection for you and grant us through your spirit, the wisdom and maturity to know how to live in your world free from slavery to sin and free from slavery to legalism and slavery to the elements and the stuff of the world and living rightly in relationship with you for your glory and for our good. Amen.